Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of LavaCon, where we gather and share expert insights on security program management delivered with, by, and for the most respected security leaders around the world. Together, we'll explore solutions to the most pressing business challenges unique to the careers of CISOs and cybersecurity executives. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. And here we are. This is Sean Martin. You are very welcome to a new episode of the Blue Lava Community podcast and webcast series. And uh, this is all about helping security leaders uh, achieve greatness, uh, not just for their own programs, but for the business. And that is through education and mentoring and information sharing and collaboration with, by, and for the CISO and security leader community. And I'm thrilled to have uh, one of those members, a founding member of the Blue Lava community, Brian Kantosan. Thanks, Brian, for joining us. Thank you, Sean. Hello, everybody. This is a, a super cool thing to be part of, and, and I'm thrilled to talk to you today. We're going to be looking at uh, the, the world of IoT security, and we, we may cross over into, uh, into industrial control systems. We'll see where this goes. Um, a big space, a space that's growing quite a bit, and not uh, not an area that's managed traditionally like the rest of the organization has, has been. Uh, so we're going to get into a lot of that today, Brian. But uh, before we do that, for those don't, that don't know who Brian is, uh, maybe a few words on your, your path into your current role uh, and uh, why this topic is important to you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my current role is I'm the uh, Chief Security Officer for Phosphorus Cybersecurity. Uh, Phosphorus is a, an IoT, enterprise IoT security company. And uh, my path actually followed a, a, a pretty, pretty interesting route, I suppose. So I started off in uh, DISA, the Defense Information Systems Agency, down at Fort Huachuca in the Cyber Warfare Group uh, in Arizona, and did that for a while. And then I decided I wanted to get as far away from the United States as I possibly could. So I moved to uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and took a job with, with Bell Labs, uh, in both cases, working in security, mostly network security and, and, uh, and system security. Uh, and then I got the startup bug. Uh, I helped build a company with uh, Amit Yaron and Grant Geyer and Tim Belcher and uh, Lod Yaron and some other really brilliant people uh, called Riptech, which was an MSSP. So we basically took everything that I was doing uh, and said, hey, how can we do this in a, uh, a remote management fashion and, and help people monitor their environments? And we eventually sold that to Symantec. But by that point, I had been bitten by the, uh, the startup bug and uh, went to a, a very small company that was actually in the back of a dentist office, essentially, in Sunnyvale called ArcSight, just a handful of people. Uh, so I had a front row seat to the, the, the birth and growth of the, the sim space, which was a really fascinating time. Um, from there, I went on to Imperva, and uh, I ran uh, emerging markets for, um, for McAfee for a couple of years, working mostly in... Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, 
uh, Latin America, a little bit in the Middle East. And then uh, from after we sold that to Intel, did Solera Networks, sold that off to Bluecoat, uh, joined a couple boards, Silence, um, Jask, Aptome, and uh, a couple others, and then wrote some books, took some time off, and then uh, went to a company called Veridin. And Veridin focused on um, really testing and val validating people's security controls and determining, you know, are their tools actually effective? So instead of selling yet another security tool, it's making sure people are getting value out of what they had. And uh, we eventually sold that to Mandiant, which then in turn sold to uh, sold to Google. Um, and now I'm here at Phosphorus. So I'm two IPOs and eight acquisitions later, or my as my wife likes to remind me, about five pounds per company uh, later. Uh, here I am, and uh, just. Uh, it's been a great ride because many of these companies, I was the CSO or CISO, uh, almost always customer facing out in the field. Uh, before COVID, I was traveling, you know, 200, 300,000 miles a year. Um, then that dropped pretty quickly, uh, pretty substantially. Uh, but I've had the great, great opportunity and fortune to not just work with brilliant people in these companies, but also all the disparate customers and all the CISOs around the world and really kind of understand their struggles and, and what they've been going through. So it's been a, it's been a great 25 years. And uh, I didn't follow the same path, but we early days, I had earlier days at Symantec, but I was part of the uh, part of the team that uh, worked. And I, I'm trying to think if if we actually crossed paths, but the the Riptech acquisition at Symantec. Yeah, well, it was Riptech. It was at stake, and, and a couple yeah. other folks, kind of all, yeah, all a buying spree. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I was building the Symantec sim at that time. Oh, fantastic! And uh, and uh, we have, I'm sure, we crossed paths at ArcSight for other reasons after I left Symantec. But um, I guess the one is it's great to see people grow and succeed and and you probably have taken a lot of a lot of what you've learned and i i wanted to the reason i'm bringing up the sim is there's probably a lot from that experience that you've carried through in terms of visibility and connection and bring, trying to bring context and and ultimately bringing some response capabilities to this maybe and i know we're talking iot but Maybe speak a little to that um, and yeah. maybe how you've carried some of that through. Yeah, well, Sim really helped me move from ROSI, or return on security investment, um, also known as mitigating risk or assurance, uh, to ROI. How can we actually get return on investment from our security devices? Um, you know, this was, if, if we think back to the, you know, the, the heyday of Sim, you had so many disparate devices that maybe you're getting value from, maybe you you weren't. It wasn't really clear. You had to cross over from network operations and security operations and system administration and web application security and all these different parts. And in some cases, I was even getting into physical security and IoT devices towards the uh, when it got a little bit more mature. But in each one of these departments, it was very clear that people, if they were lucky, they were maybe getting 25, 35% value from their security investments. And it wasn't really clear that they could even measure operational effectiveness and efficiency. Are they doing better this month than they were doing last month or last year? Um, did this new product actually make them more secure? And that was one of the first times where I said, you know, it's not just about stopping bad things. CISOs are really strategically 
part of the business and they have to make key business decisions that are impactful to the broader organization, certainly well beyond security and well beyond IT. And I think one of the customers that I was working with where it really resonated was a, uh, it was a healthcare provider. And SIM was very common across healthcare providers, payers, and sciences such as pharmaceuticals. But providers were unique in that um, often targeted, uh, they have uh, relatively small uh, security staffs. Um, I would probably say somewhere along in par with what retail usually goes, which is really razor thin. Not like financial services or government or, or some other groups that have pretty pretty large investments in that area. And the reason for that, and there's many reasons, but one of the reasons is many hospitals actually start off at, at a deficit because they're, they're not allowed to refuse care. So if somebody comes in, they've been shot or hit by a car, some type of medical issue, they can't just say, oh, go, go away. Right? We, would, we wouldn't want that to happen. So there's already a bit of a loss. And in some cases, that's 25, 30% in the hole. So the margins are very thin, right? Very, very thin, kind of like a supermarket, very, very thin. So what they were saying is, look, for every dollar we're spending on SIM or some security technology or, um, you know, a new, you know, security analyst to work here. That's a dollar that we can't spend on a new MRI machine or another doctor or a nurse or a PA or, or some other person that's going to help with the quality of customer care. Now, not to say that security is not part of that. We want to protect the customer data. We want to make sure those machines stay available, that they're not locked up via ransomware and a million other, other cybersecurity reasons. But on the front line, it's, hey, are we able to get the patients treated properly and quickly and provide them the level of care they need? And security kind of chips away on that. So uh, some of the CISOs that I was working with early on in this particular hospital that I'm thinking of uh, right now, they're saying, I need to be able to show value, how I'm delivering value to the organization above and beyond just stopping bad things from happening. Like, wow, security is really being treated strategically in this organization. It's, you know, they've, we always talk about having a seat at the table, right? Well, this CISO had a seat at the table. And because of that, they had to justify their spend. They had to show how this is impacting the business mission. And that was probably the first time that I had seen it done at such a large scale where there was so much pressure uh, on the CISO to prove pretty much on a, a weekly basis why they are needed. And uh, in our case, at, at that point with ArcSight, that was helping them actually show that value through their SIM solution, how all their tools could be brought together and, and really help them uh, be more efficient, more effective, thus making the hospital more efficient, more effective. Yeah, and I, I'm sure people listening are, I hear the word justify, improve, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, yeah, when, when, you're, when you're not just when you're not helping to grow the business, but you're, you're having to show why, why your investments aren't uh, distracting from the business, it becomes, it becomes challenging and kind of on your back on, on your, on your heels a bit, I guess, yeah. as, a, as a CISO. And, and, and oh. the conversations I have, I always try to figure out, is there a way to change the viewpoint or the conversation to, to be more strategic? If, if you don't, if you're not just about, mitigating risk and protecting information and systems, but actually here's how you can architect the business. Here's how you can define business processes. Here's how you can leverage technology. Um, we were having a conversation with Mark Weatherford and we were talking about uh, the, the uh, supply chain and the complexities there and, and, and spinning up services and buying products and this complexity and, and all that adds to 
the challenge of actually helping the business grow. And if you can actually have a clear vision of what you want to accomplish, how you accomplish it, consolidate some of those things, maintain uh, resiliency and reliability in the process, um, you're in better shape. So I guess my rant done there, I'm, I'm, let's, let's get into the IOT world yeah. here. Cause, yeah. cause it, and maybe a definition first off, because in different industries, different sectors, it might look different. Um, maybe it's the same, but yeah. what is IOT versus ICS versus OT versus yeah. IT? Um, does it look different in a hospital? You mentioned retail. I'm thinking some really cool things happening in retail, right? Yeah. yeah. Contactless checkout and things like that. So describe the world of IOT in relation to everything else and maybe a few examples where it might be different in different sectors. Yeah. No, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm, I speak with, speak to people all over the world about this, literally. And the definition of IOT, I don't think I've ever heard the same one twice. But if I, if I boil it down to sort of the essence of what makes up an IOT device, generally speaking, generally, it's a purpose-built device uh, with some type of embedded firmware, which is usually Android or a flavor of Linux, um, BSD, especially on the network side. Um, that disallows the installation of some type of endpoint security tool, some type of EDR, you know, um, some type of antivirus solution, et cetera. So there's these lock devices. Now, across that category, it's very broad, right? So we've got IoT devices that we all think of, like printers and KVM switches and racks and uh, voice over IP phones, audio video equipment, et cetera. Those are all kind of mainstay enterprise security stuff. And then there's some stuff that's on the fringe of that, like gunshot detection equipment that they have, which I had never even heard of uh, before, but they are deployed often on like university campuses. And if they hear senses a, a, a gunshot, they can uh, one, detect it, and two, help triangulate perhaps where that came from. Um, and then we think of satellites and we think of automobiles and pacemakers and all these devices that are, you know, they're, they're firmware, they're, they're network connected, they're purpose built, you can't really update them or change them. Um, and then that brings us into sort of the OT world, industrial control systems and PLCs and all the SCADA equipment out there, things that are controlling voltage and pressure and volume and temperature and, and everything in between, digital assets that are controlling physics, essentially. Um, and then the third category of that, so traditional IoT, um, the OT world, and that's the network devices. It's the wireless access points, the SANs, the NAS. It's the layer two and layer three switches. Um, those all fall into that category as well. And interestingly enough, when we look at it from the side of the attackers, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing more and more breaches now focused on going after these IoT, these network devices, and these OT devices uh, for a very specific reason. Uh, one, people have a lot of them for sure, but they're also highly vulnerable and no one's really managing them. So instead of, you know, pounding your head against the front door on the firewall or trying to find some other way to compromise the network, they said, let's, let's either go in through these IoT devices or let's compromise through a traditional route, like a phishing attack and get onto someone's laptop. Then let's move laterally and hang out on the IoT devices, install our tools and use that to scan the network, sniff traffic, enumerate, you know, administrative groups, all these other things, because there I can maintain persistence and I can evade detection. So it's really a perfect storm because the devices themselves can be attacked. I could attack a video camera and I could use that camera to spy on you with both audio and video. I could unlock doors. 
I could shut down um, a UPS system. Uh, I can access your critical data data through access to a KVM switch or a lights out management. So all, there's all that. Then there's the ability to do things like crypto jacking. I'm gonna use all 10,000 of your video cameras to mine cryptocurrency because you're not paying attention, because they're vulnerable, and you probably won't know until you get your power bill because uh, it's not gonna make your power bill go through the roof in these cases. But the, the one that's really getting people that I think is really starting to uh, make organizations perk up and say, wow, this is a big problem, is the compromise of IoT devices, not as an end result, not to use as part of a botnet, not to use for ransomware, but to move laterally and attack your IT assets and attack your cloud assets. And we're seeing that. In fact, Mandiant just uh, uh, released a report called Quiet Exit, where the attackers did just that. They attacked network devices, such as routers and switches and wireless access points, IoT devices like phones and printers and cameras. They, they use that as a way to stay persistent and evade detection because no one's looking. And then they started making API calls to local Microsoft Exchange servers, as well as 365 in the cloud. And they extracted massive amounts of email and sensitive data. And in some cases, this lasted for over 18 months. So the bad guys know it. The good guys are starting to pay attention to it. And they're saying, wow, this is, this is, a, this is a big problem. This is having a direct impact on my IoT assets, my OT assets, my network assets, as well as my IT and my cloud-based assets. So it's a, it's a big problem, and the bad guys know it, and luckily the good guys are starting to figure it out. Well, let's talk about that, uh, that difference there. Um, the, and I know we talk about uh, cybercrime as, as an organized uh, business, and... They, they certainly collaborate and share information and, and use uh, share tools and things like that. That doesn't mean they have a network admin team and, a, and an endpoint admin team and a security ops team and a dev ops team and a dev sec ops team. That's not how they look at the world. They see, well, I, I want to get your th thoughts on this, but I think they see an entity that's exposed right? or a sector that's exposed or a set of things that have vulnerabilities that they can go after. They, they don't care if there's a network admin or an IT, an IT or an OT admin. Yeah. And I, I'm just wondering if that's our, our current downfall to where we're not looking at some of these things across the board, like, like yeah. the cyber criminals do. A lot, a lot of finger pointing. Right. So uh, I'll use a quick analogy on the sim side. So uh, when I was with ArcSight, I co-authored a book with the former uh, deputy director of the NSA, Bill Kroll. Brilliant, brilliant man. And the book was called Physical and Logical Security Convergence. And it was about correlating all the physical security controls with the network access controls to say somebody walked into a building in London, England. But at the same time, they're trying to VPN from Palo Alto, California. It doesn't pass the dead test. Very, very basic rudimentary takes on, on that notion. Um, what I find in the sort of IoT world, let's just take video surveillance cameras. When you go into an organization, first of all, people don't know what they have. There's very, very poor discovery and asset management as it relates to IoT. So on average, what we found at Phosphorus is... Can I, can I pause you, Brian? Why, why is that? Are they on different networks? Are they... What's the reason for that? They're... Mo the, the basic answer for that is the way that traditional legacy uh, scanners, 
um, NBAD solutions that try to do asset discovery and traditional asset device discovery solutions work. They're so geared to focus on IT that the IoT devices, they can potentially knock over and break. Um, OT, their approach just doesn't work at all, so you can't use it in that regard. But for IoT, they can knock them over. And when they do discover anything, it's it doesn't give you the detail that you would need to do anything. It might tell you it's a printer, but I might be a you know I might be a hotel chain, and I've got fifty thousand printers. And just telling me a printer doesn't really do anything. I really need to get down to the details. So the old legacy approaches to IoT discovery or just discovery of assets doesn't really work well in IoT. So that's a big, that's a big flaw right there. They just don't know what they have. Um, I've even seen groups that have these cesium atomic clocks, these really, really expensive clocks um, they use for like stock trading. And if you buy or sell a stock and you have a one or two millisecond advantage over me, we all know that can be a big monetary difference. So these are really expensive clocks. They thought they had six of them. And when we went in to work with them, within within a couple hours, we found out you actually have 15 of these. And these are $100,000 plus dollar clocks, essentially. <laughs> and they, and they, they didn't even know more, more than half of them. They had no idea. So just understanding. And, and here's another funny tidbit. On average, and this number blew my hair back the first time I heard it, most organizations have about three to five IoT devices per employee. So 10,000 person corporation, somewhere between 30 and 50,000. Now, with that said, sometimes like law firms, for example, they're going to have a little bit less. Um, batch and discrete manufacturing, they're going to have a little bit more. But on average, three to five per employee. And the other funny part of that is when we go into an organization, we say, take a guess. What's your assumption about how many IoT devices that you think you have? Almost Every single time we do it, they're off by 40 to 60% in terms of what they're guessed because there's so many connected devices that they go, oh, I didn't, even, I didn't even think of all the physical biometrics door access points or all the little lights out management switches that are in the back of my servers. And when we tell them, these are just little Linux servers or BSD or Android devices with often pretty close to the same amount of power, capabilities, service support, protocol support. A lot of them are running undocumented SSH with default passwords and all sorts of crazy things. And they're all over. So visibility is a big, big issue. So once you get past that and you're saying, okay, now I know I have 50,000 devices in my organization, what you start finding is a quarter of those are running end of life software. 50% uh, of them have default passwords. And the passwords that they do have that aren't default were changed once at the time of installation. Uh, or, here, or can't be changed. <laughs> or, or, or can't be changed, yeah. Sometimes in the OT devices specifically, they can't be changed. Or they only support like a four-digit numeric pin. Or this device supports 25 characters, but not the letter B or a hyphen. We've seen all sorts of, because there's no, there's no commonality how that's done. And vulnerability-wise, usually about 50% of the devices have a level eight on a score of one to 10 for a CVSS score, level eight vulnerability. An additional 18% have a nine or a 10, so higher critical, which means that you don't really need much skill at all. You really just need to know how to like log in, perhaps over Telnet with a default password. Um, and, and, and we initially started this conversation, I was talking about video cameras and kind of bringing that around. We're in organizations where they have 10,000, 20,000 video cameras different sizes, shapes, flavors, brands, things like that, but they all pretty much do the same thing. Some do audio, some do video only. Um, it just depends. 
But the problem when it comes down to operations, and to your point earlier about, you know, the bad guys don't care. So who's running this? Well, we think it's facilities. And facility says, no, I thought it was network operations because they're on the network. No, that's, that's the security team. No, it's IT. No, we're outsourcing that to a vendor. So it's like the end of Spider-Man where they're all pointing at each other. Who's, who's doing what in the multiverse? Um, so who, who manages these? And at the end of the day, it's, it, you've got these devices, these little Linux servers with default passwords, tons of vulnerabilities in them um, that are being taken over and using to spy on you to launch ransomware, to do crypto jacking, to move laterally and all these other malicious things. And again, we don't even know we've got them, let alone how to fix them. And uh, I saw that as one of the biggest issues across CISOs. You know, at, over the last few years, even before I joined uh, Phosphorus, I was hearing again and again, we've got these blind spots. One, we don't know what we have. And two, when we find them, we don't really have a way to manually fix them. Who's going to go around to you know, 10, 20,000 printers with a paperclip and hold down that reset button or some other archaic way and try to update these. The good thing is, the, the flip side of this, most enterprise IoT, and we're not talking about your home Roomba vacuum or your Ring doorbell or Alexa. Those are cloud-based managed, the consumer stuff. It's a little bit different. That's a different, different ball of wax. But the enterprise stuff, most of it, you can go ahead and remotely manage those credentials. You can harden those devices. You can manage the certificates. You can manage the upgrade or downgrade, in some cases, of the firmware on those devices, which means that you can treat them like you've been treating IT assets. And the analogy I like to use is IoT security today is like IT security was back in like 1995, where we didn't have a great inventory. Maybe we had a Visio diagram taped to the wall in our network operations center. Patching was a little bit archaic. Password management was pretty archaic. Um, you know, we were focused on what the banner should say when somebody logs into our network. Don't say welcome because then the hackers can come right in. Um, it was very simplistic. And that same thing is being applied to IoT today. The problem is the volume and the fact that they're hyper-connected with all these different ports and protocols allowing access to your most sensitive devices is very, very problematic. And so... New, you talk about enterprise IoT. So, so it sounds like there's a market and vendors are enabling their stuff to be managed. So it, are there options, I guess, for organizations to say, we, we need these switches, we need these door locks, we need these cameras. Are there options for them that can fit nicely into their uh, overall management scheme? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point you mentioned, too, because no CISO says, I want yet another console that I have to have to log into and work with. So the, the best solutions and, and, and quite, quite frankly, the way that, that we try to operate is, you know, being very API friendly. So, for example, if, uh, if a company does come in and they do some discovery and they find out they do have 50,000 devices across, you know, different different network gear, as well as, you know, their, all their wireless access points, and then all their IoT stuff, their UPS, their racks, their, um, their KVM switches, voice over IP phones, which generally measure in the tens and tens of thousands, printers, so on and so forth. Um, they say, well, it's great if I have a tool that can discover that, but I also need to be able to remediate it. I want to fix those passwords. I want to, you know, update the firmware. I want to be able to do that. Okay, that's great. But I also don't want to have to look at this separate console all the time because I have all these other tools already that I need to feed in. So can you integrate with the service now for ticketing? 
Can you integrate with a Splunk for the log management? Um, can you integrate with my source solutions um, or maybe my privilege access management tools like CyberArk and things of that nature for the backend for the actual password storage? And the answer has to be yes, yes, yes to all of that. If you're going to invest in an enterprise IoT security platform today, and there's a few different flavors out there, um, one of the things that you absolutely positively need to have is to make sure that all those API, API connections, all those hooks are there. Um, so you can do reporting from the same solution that you use for your IT reports. So you can do, uh, you can understand your vulnerability stats and measure those with all your other metrics from one centralized console. So all your ticketing and logging, everything is centralized in the same way. So that's a, that's a really important capability. And the other thing is you don't want to approach it from, you know, the, the old days of IoT in the old days, five years ago, was let's set up a VLAN. Let's try to set every single IoT device we have on a VLAN because we have no way to keep these devices safe. And what I like to say is that that's great. You can put things behind VLANs. VLANs are great. I, I, don't, I don't think there's a problem with that. They can be expensive and they can be difficult to manage and they can be difficult to scale for sure. But at the end of the day, you're not fixing the problem. It's like I cut my left hand instead of, and it's bleeding all over. Instead of going to the hospital, I, I stick a sandwich bag on there and wrap it up with duct tape. Well, I'm, not, I'm no longer getting blood on my right hand, so that's good, but I still have a, a, a bloody hand in a bag over here, so I'm not fixing it. And that's the problem with VLANs. You still have a system with bad or default passwords running all these extra proto clear text protocols, and it's got Bluetooth low energy, and it's got Zigbee on, and it's got wired and wireless, and old end-of-life firmware from a decade ago, like Ubuntu 10 or something like that, and it's still broken but you're just gonna say, I'm gonna kind of push it over here and hope it doesn't, it doesn't impact anything. We would never do that in the IT world, at least not today. Uh, but we, we found that that's kind of the approach that we have to take. And that again, spilled over to the network devices, some of the OT devices as well. Instead of fixing it, because we didn't think there was a way to fix it at scale historically, we just tried to hide it behind these VLANs for a while. So that approach doesn't work. Um, and then what again- What does? Because I was actually gonna ask you about that. So. Yeah. There's going to be legacy stuff. I mean, there, there's yeah. going to be a device in a hospital that saves people's lives. There's no alternative for it that's managed yeah. securely. Yeah. Um, they're going to keep that on, right? So VLANs help, as you point out. But uh, what are what are the options then if if the choice yeah. is to not not save lives or or keep that device off yeah. the network? <laughs> Yeah, well, the, the honest, honest to goodness, there's there's sort of a new kid in town in the security space. They're called enterprise IoT security platforms. And there's a few few different variants and ways to approach that. But their whole, whole approach to this space is to say, I want to be able to discover your devices, whether it's an MRI device or it's a PLC controlling a, a turbine, a multi-million dollar turbine, um, or it's a, it's a door lock. And I need to be able to discover those safely. And there's a term I want to use here called interrogation. So the idea of scanning these devices is completely gone. So nothing against Rapid7 or Qualys or Tenable, all great solutions for what they do. But they, they, you can't do that in this world because it will take it down, uh, especially in the OT world. You say, anybody in OT, oh, you're going to scan my, if you use the word scan, it's, it's already a done conversation. But if you can interrogate, what I mean by interrogate, um, I like to say, think of uh, Star Wars with C-3PO. You know, he could talk what, a million different languages. There was a scene in the first Star Wars where, you know, they need somebody that can speak the binary language of, of, of water evaporators or something of that nature. All these IoT devices, 
that can be managed across the network, whether it's an MRI device or whatnot, they have a way that they want to communicate, whether it's through a web interface or SSH or some type of proprietary solution. On the OT side, it's Modbus and DNP3 and other specific protocols that they want to talk. If you can speak to them in their protocols, you're thus minimizing the risk of you know, knocking that machine over. And you need to be able to interrogate and talk to those devices in an unauthenticated or authenticated way. Of course, with the authenticated means, you get more information potentially. So you can get all the way down to serial number, firmware number, modelware number, all the different aspects of that system that you would never get by sniffing traffic or doing a port scan or vulnerability scan, et cetera. Now, when doing that interrogation, you find out, oh, it's firmware ABC123 you automatically know what CVEs firmware ABC123 patch 7, for example, has. You don't need to scan for vulnerabilities. So you simply interrogate and you grab all that information. That's critical because now if you want to go to the next step, which I think is the more important step, once I've done discovery, I know empirically with 100% accuracy, this thing is this thing and this is what it does. And it's on version 7 of the firmware and version 10 is the latest one. I can go ahead and upgrade that remotely and upgrade that across multiple devices or a single device or a device in building one or devices in North America can be very detailed based on that and have a notion that says, in addition to that, because I have all the metadata, I know that I can go right from version seven to 10 or my upgrade path has to go seven, then eight, then nine, then 10. And I always thought that was really cool. That was really essential to do this is to have that, that deep knowledge that you can only get from those enterprise platforms. But then what I found with a customer, and this happened to be a, um, uh, a large financial, they had to downgrade a bunch of their firmware. We don't usually talk about downgrades. I was like, really, what's, what's the use case there? And it made perfect sense. So if we think of headline grabbing attacks like Log4J, for example, stuff that everyone's talking about them. So every hacker in the world is, is you know, going on to uh, Shodan and trying to find devices that you know, might be running that and then going ahead and scanning and looking for these vulnerabilities. We, we know you're going to get impacted. They said, wow, we have, we have devices that number in the tens of thousands that have Log4J. And let's say, for example, they're on version five of their firmware. And the vendor knows. But a lot of these vendors that make IoT devices, they're not necessarily technology companies the way we think of technologies. Sometimes they're, um, they're physical security companies or agricultural companies or something kind of outside the space. So they don't really follow a security development lifecycle at SDLC. There's a lot of shared libraries. There's a lot of white labeling, things that are cobbled together. So a vulnerability that's on a phone also shows up on a router, also shows up on a printer because of all that shared infrastructure and a lack of testing. So that's kind of a little deep, dark secret in, in this space. Um, so they're like, oh, the vendor's going to have a patch, but that patch isn't going to be available for three months. Well, we don't have three days because the internet's being bombarded. So I want to actually downgrade my devices to the previous version that is known not to have that log4j vulnerability. And we make a business decision to say, okay, what we're going to lose from the downgrade, is that going to be more impactful from you know, a potential hit? And let's go ahead and do the downgrade. So they, because they can do it easily, it's you know, point and click essentially, um, they can go ahead and push that out. If they, without an enterprise IoT security platform, you're talking about going to thousands or tens of thousands of devices and manually changing that, which means you'll never do it because it doesn't scale simply not tenable, so it doesn't get done. So the solution is either have an automated approach or don't fix it at all. And that's kind of where we are. And that's the reality of it because of the sheer scale of IoT devices. So without great automation, 
without interrogation that gives you that level of accuracy, you simply can't get on to remediation and all the things that come after that. It's, it's simply impossible. And that the kind of the coolest part that I think CISOs it really resonates with them the most is, okay, I've discovered my devices. Great. I fixed the passwords. I've hardened it. I'm managing the certificates. I fixed the firmware. Wonderful. But now I still have 50,000 devices and I know stuff's going to break. I know someone's going to stick a paperclip in something and reset it because they had to reboot it or something's going to happen or it's going to get hacked. How do I manage by exception? And that's, again, that goes back to the SIM days. I've got 50,000 devices, but I need to get an alert or a ticket or a log or something that's going to tell me out of your 50,000 devices, these are the five that look suspicious today because it was in version seven of the firmware. Now it's in version three. It did have a good password. Now the password is back to default. It wasn't running clear text protocols, but now it is. So now I know exactly what it is that I have to take a look at because there might've been an issue. And that ability to manage by exception kind of equals scale when it comes to IoT. And that seems to be sort of this resounding <sighs> across CISOs because their whole thing is, how do I get my hands around this in an automated way that actually lets me move forward? And, and that, you know, we'll call it environmental drift monitoring, if you will, to see if something's drifted from a known good state to an unknown or a possibly known bad state, that's really the key to the problem, if I can manage that way. And that, that seems to be a big deal. And that's what, uh, what CSOs are seeing is actually saving them time and allowing them to move on to the next step. Yeah, yeah. Exception management, uh, incident handling. I mean, we could, we could talk for hours and days on this uh, yeah. and many different paths. I think we looked at, we looked at this from, uh, from a vector in and lateral movement, um, uh, I'm sure there are tons of conversations around uh, data privacy on these. You mentioned spying, but data privacy on the devices, the metadata they create, the, da the databases they access, the cloud they sit in <laughs> or yeah. they connect to. Uh, uh, I mean, well, yeah, lo loads, of, loads of the denial service we didn't really get into, but uh, there, there's so many paths. Every attack that can happen in IT yeah. can happen via IoT or OT yeah. or for your network gear. It's, uh, you know, and, here, and here's the interesting thing. We're actually seeing now uh, specific malware and SSH client server tunnels, um, like Dropbear, et cetera, being compiled specifically to run on the Linux variants that are doing that persistence uh, for evading that detection. And like one of the simplest examples we saw, we were working with a, a branch of the military and they had all of these printers. I say all of these thousands of printers. I, I think it was somewhere between two and 3,000. So big, but not huge uh, in this specific agency. And they had noticed that there was a lot of activity from these devices outbound. And they picked it up through Splunk. So kudos to Splunk for saying, hey, there's a lot of weird um, log activity. And it's all over ICMP because ICMP is, you know, is kind of outbound, allowed ping and things like that for network testing. And as most of us know in the security space, if you want to exfiltrate data from a device, ICMP is a great way to do it. You have to take big packets and chop them into little packets, and it takes a little bit longer, and there's more traffic because there's, there's more packets going across the network, but it's, it's a great way to kind of hide. But what had happened is some attackers had compromised some laptops. That, that's kind of what the scenario was seen. They moved laterally to get onto these printers. Most of these printers had never been updated. Some of them were running firmware that was over a decade old. They installed hacker tools, which quite honestly, I think were just some basic scanners and, and tools for you know, doing the ICMP um, exfiltration. 
most enterprise printers have about a 20 to 40 gig hard drive. Not small, not big, but pretty, pretty good if you're doing some data theft. They were using these to attack Active Directory systems, databases, servers, anything that they could get their hands on. Pulling that data down, chopping it up, and spitting it out. And because it was over ICMP, it wasn't being detected at all for quite a while. And this had actually gone on for about three months before they said, okay, these Splunk logs are something that we should really pay attention to. And these were just printers. And when they found a couple printers that were uh, compromised, out of their roughly 2,000 printers that they had, about half of them, about half their printers had actually been compromised. Not because somebody had to really hack them, because they were running default passwords in many cases, or they had level 10 vulnerabilities that just allowed easy access with minimal effort for an attacker to actually hack it, um, which didn't really doesn't really require any hacking, um, to go ahead and steal that data. It was right under their noses. It was on these printers. And the bad guys love to target printers. Printers and cameras are probably the two biggest ones because everyone's got them. Nobody fixes them. As long as the printer's printing and the camera's you know, recording what it needs to record, people don't pay a lot of attention to them. And the bad guys know that, they're building tools specifically to target these devices. And again, the lateral movement to exfiltrate the sensitive data, it's, it's probably one of the main main use cases we're seeing now. It's not, it's not locking it up for ransomware, it's not you know, just a denial of service attack or to add it to a bot. We still see those for sure, but most attacks now are all about that lateral movement and that data exfil. So, I mean, a great example, and I'm, I'm sure there are millions more. <laughs> and the, the, the question I have, and I'm, I'm, I suspect many of the folks listening might have it as well, well I, it's almost impossible to know all the scenarios and to be alerted to that. And certainly there, there's this thing called threat intelligence, and we could share that threat intelligence and be part of ISAs and ISACs, and, and that's all useful Above and beyond that, you're not going to hear the story of we need to downgrade these devices because of log4j. Yeah. Right. In a, in a, a CTI feed. Yeah. That, that comes from a community, a community that connects with each other and can say, hey, this is how I'm, this is what I'm seeing. This is how it's impacting my organization. This is how I'm responding. May not be right for you. But this is how I'm viewing it. And, and perhaps that starts a conversation in the, in the community to say, that's great. I would do this slightly differently. Um, so maybe talk to me a little bit about, I, I know you're, you're part of the Blue Lava community. Why? why? Yeah. <laughs> and and how, how does that play a role in here? You know, community is so critical now, just like it was, well, it still is today, of course, in the IT side. Um, but again, I, I have that analogy back to, you know, IoT security today is like 1995 IT security when there were some communities and it started to get some momentum. But sharing this information, being able to talk with your peers, being able to understand these use cases and the, these lessons learned. I mean, we've shared a handful today, some, some examples that are public, some, some that probably haven't been shared publicly. But because the, the breadth and depth of this, this IoT term is so so massive. I mean, we've got um, internet of battlefield things, um, uh, industrial internet of things, internet of healthcare things, uh, smart ships, smart buildings, smart cities, uh, all the network gear, all these kind of groups, all, all these areas are expanding rapidly. And in fact, 
um, smart cities and smart uh, buildings is probably one of the most rapidly growing sectors and smart ships. And if you're not in this industry, you don't think about it a lot, but there's, there's like four major, you know, there's many, but there's four major um, shipping companies worldwide. All four have been hit with extremely aggressive attacks targeting the IOT and control systems on those ships, all four in, in large, large scale attacks. The same thing is happening with cities. The same thing is happening um, with uh, internet health systems as well as, you know, the, the battlefield things, so on and so forth. So you have all these little groups and they're all learning lessons. And sometimes they're communicating internally as well, but I can't stress enough the need for community. I mean, I'm sitting here, you know, sharing my experiences, Mark Weatherford, who I know very well and that you spoke to earlier talking about supply chain. Of course, he's got federal experience. Uh, he's got state government being the CISO for uh, California and then later um, Colorado. Uh, you know, all of us kind of bring in our own shared experiences. None of us are experts in every area. And because of that, we need to be able to share our information. And it's sort of like going to a, uh, a doctor. If you, if you go to see a, a heart doctor, a cardiologist, and you say, hey, I've got a, I've got a problem, well, they're going to default to think, oh, it must be related to the heart. But maybe it has something to do with your right foot. Who knows? But it's their training, their experience, their backgrounds. You talk to me about something, and I might say, oh, let's look at the IoT side. You know, Mark might be the supply chain side. So if we take all our disparate experiences and we kind of push those together and the use cases and the lessons learned and the ROI equations and all these other things that we care about, we can learn so much from each other and so much more effectively than we would trying to do it just by ourselves. Um, there's a famous quote and I'll, I forget who said it and I'm going to paraphrase it, but essentially, you know, we're not going to live long enough to make all the mistakes by ourselves. So we better learn from others. Right. And, so you're good, sir. We're not going to live long enough to patch all our IoT devices. We're not going to live long enough. Oh, God, isn't that the truth? I'm going <laughs> to run out of paper clips. Um, so, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm so excited about the Blue Lava community. It's, uh, it's bringing a group of people together, uh, like myself, not just to share, but hopefully to begin a dialogue with everybody else that's that's uh, listening and, and start these conversations and and you know help change people's minds if if need be and I, I'm I'm always I'm always willing to learn I mean heck I've been in cybersecurity for 25 years and I know one thing if I'm doing the same thing twice I'm probably doing it wrong the second time so we have to keep on reinventing ourselves and man if we have the community to do that with um, it can make a, a big difference and we're we're all in cybersecurity not because it's boring and not because it's easy because it is exciting and it is a challenge and it's always changing. And it's, uh, it's better to be part of a team. It's better to be part of a community when you're doing something like this, which is kind of one of the really exciting things I think about Blue Lava. Yep. I wholeheartedly agree. And as, as a host of these and many other conversations, my primary goal is to get people to think. Right. And, and from there, hopefully they'll be inspired to, learn <laughs> and ultimately take some action and I guess really ultimately give, give back to the community as well. So whatever, how are they moved through that process? Hopefully they'll share their insights as well. So Brian, it's been a great conversation. I, I want to maybe very short response, um, an action your peers can take in the next week or two or in the next few weeks. Um, 
to really get a sense of what the what's going on with IoT. What what what's some advice you can give them? Yeah, I would. Uh, if you were the person responsible, ask yourself or maybe somebody on your team uh, or an adjacent team. Kind of ask them what what the state of your IoT is. Do one, do you have an idea of what IoT devices you even have? And two, do you understand what's their current security state? Are they running default passwords? Are they vulnerable? Do they have end of life firmware? And if you don't know these questions, and, and not assumption based, but actually evidence based, you actually have evidence about this information, is it an acceptable level of risk for you to continue going that way? And if it's not, I would suggest take a look. There's there's other vendors out there. I'm not here to to push phosphorus or anything like that, but take a look at the enterprise IoT security platforms. They're it's they're the new kids in town. They're going to help you discover those devices and probably most importantly, help you remediate the risks on those devices. And as we talked about before, allow you to manage by exception once you get those uh, devices fixed. And if you're not in that state today, you might be in a situation where you have, again, 50,000 devices out there that are all backdoors into your environment, frankly, many of which might already have been compromised. And as we saw with um, the report by Mandia about quiet exit, in some of these cases, they were exfiltrating data for a year and a half. Nobody needs to be in that situation anymore. We've got tools. There's people in the community here uh, through Blue Lava that you can talk to and learn more about this. There's there's help available. So take a census, figure out what you've got, what's the state of the state as it relates to a security posture. And if it's not where you think it needs to be, it's probably time to take some action. Because I guarantee you, the bad guys, they're already taking action. Yep, yep. Great advice, Brian. And, uh, I appreciate all the stories you brought uh, to bear today. And uh, yeah, I think the, the ultimate the ultimate for me is start the conversation, right? Reach out to Brian if you're listening, you have questions. Uh, there are others in the community that I'm sure have experience in discovering and detecting and mitigating and responding to uh, IoT issues. And uh, that's what the community's for. So um, thanks everybody for listening to and, and watching this episode. Uh, hope to see you again soon in the Blue Lava community. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Sean. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the LavaCom podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.